This is part one in a two-episode series. This episode contains brief discussion of violence. Listener discretion is advised. There is also brief mention of suicidal ideation. If you or someone you love is struggling, you can get help by calling 1-800-273-8255. This is The Fall Line. Atoka, Oklahoma. It may seem like a place between. Two hours south of Tulsa, two hours north of Dallas. Choctaw land with a western border that meets the edge of Chickasaw land. Four highways that intersect at its heart. Route 69, Highway 3, Highway 7, Highway 75. It's a small town with a population a little over 3,000. And all in all, it takes up just under nine square miles of space. But with all those roads, there's a lot of traffic coming and going. But there are people who have put down roots in Atoka. Many are ranchers and farmers. The rolling wide land suits them. Lots of families have lived there for a long time. People tend to know each other. Last names pop up again and again in obituaries or news columns and church bulletins. The local cemeteries feature sprawling family plots. This is the town where Victor Ray Greenwood was born and raised, where he played basketball, and where, in the early 2000s, he vanished. When you see the terrain, it's hard to imagine. The local police tell us there are no inaccessible areas in Atoka, nothing that searchers couldn't reach. There are small bodies of water in and near town, but they've been checked, even dragged. A little town like Atoka is not an easy place for someone like Victor to vanish. He was an adult, over six feet tall. He didn't drive. He walked everywhere he wanted to go. He followed established routines. He was well known to most in town. On the last day he was seen, no one reported anything unusual. It's hard to understand. And a lot of things about Victor's disappearance have been hard to understand. For his family, especially his brothers, Eric and Chris, who've been trying to sort out what happened to him. For the local assistant chief of police, Mark Rains, who has worked Victor's case for almost two decades. For his brother Eric's friend, Nicole, who has, for the past four months, become a citizen detective, doing the legwork in Atoka for these episodes. You probably haven't heard of Victor Greenwood or his disappearance. Adult men get little press when they go missing. And as he was a black male living in a rural area before social media helped stories spread, it's unlikely his story has passed your timeline. But on the off chance it has, you might have seen the date of his disappearance listed as January 12, 2001. And that is incorrect. Our first task in these episodes is to correct that information. We have to start at the very beginning and reestablish the facts of his case. To the best of our knowledge, Victor Greenwood actually disappeared 
on Wednesday, January 9th, 2002. That's what his stepfather, who raised him as his own, Joe Bill Greenwood, originally told investigators. January 9th was the last time he saw his son. They walked together each day, Joe Bill to work and Victor on his daily rounds to visit friends and family. And so, January 9th is the date that local police have always used, in their internal reports and on their flyers. It's the date that Oklahoma Crime Stoppers used, in the ad they ran three years after Victor disappeared. Victor's brother Chris told us that, by the 10th of January, he was concerned that Victor had not returned. However, Victor sometimes spent the night with relatives in town. There was also some thought that he could have caught a ride and gone to visit friends or family in surrounding areas. Victor's missing persons report was eventually filed on the 14th, several days after he was last seen. When the report was formally filed, it was actually by Victor's biological father, Buford, and Buford's wife. They were living in Texas and not Atoka at the time that Victor disappeared. We're told that both sides of the family had been in contact with law enforcement. Over the past few months, we've spoken regularly with Mark Rains, now Assistant Chief of Police in Atoka. He's worked on Victor's case since the beginning. He's also known the Greenwood family for a long time. He believes that the original information given by Joe Bill Greenwood, that Joe Bill last saw Victor on the morning of January 9th, 2002, it's the best information to go on. Having reviewed everything, we agree. The date of the 12th does not appear anywhere in the official documents. The family never mentioned the 12th in their report. So how did January 12th end up on NamUs and in the Charlie Project? We aren't sure. We believe it may have originated as a simple error on a flyer designed to spread awareness of Victor's disappearance, which listed the date of disappearance as January 12, 2001. Also note there the wrong year. That flyer was not produced by law enforcement, but it circulated all the same and may have made its way to volunteers in various organizations. Thus, January 12, 2001 became the date that appears on the few websites people who were interested in cases, like us, like you, our listeners, use. Now, the year being misreported is a more complex issue. We'll get to that a little later in the episode, because it ties into Victor's story. But we want to touch on why the date matters so much. NamUs is used by law enforcement, forensic anthropologists, and other experts. They may rule in or rule out cases based entirely on a date. So, Victor could be overlooked as a match for an unidentified person based on that error alone. It's not the outcome his family or Atoka police would hope for to tie Victor to a decedent, but it is a serious consideration. Now that those online date discrepancies have been spotted, law enforcement has been informed. Assistant Chief Rains has already contacted NamUs about the database's discrepancy. Could the misinformation have affected possible matches up to this point? We don't know. We hope not.
Dates are only one thread in the knot of uncertainty that is Victor Greenwood's disappearance. Like the city of Atoka, Victor's case sits at a kind of crossroads, paths of possibilities leading off in different directions. It can seem like there is no straight, clear path to the resolution. His brother, Eric Greenwood, hopes to change that. And so does Eric's friend, Nicole. She reached out to us early this year and asked us to cover Victor's case. She'd been watching Eric post about Victor's case on social media for over a decade, and she was worried that Victor's story would never make it past Oklahoma's borders. Eric was always genuine and nice, and I kept up with him through Facebook, and I just remember him posting about how his brother had been missing for 20 years, and he has no answers. And it was just heartbreaking. And I talked to him. I got on the phone with him. And I was like, tell me the story. And he feels like nothing, you know, happened. Nothing has moved forward into finding Victor. I've listened to podcasts and I've listened to the fall line and how you relate those stories of the missing people. And I was just like, Eric, if I reach out to a podcast, would you be okay to do that? Let me see if I can get some help because the story of your brother needs to be told. I went to the police department and talked to them and talked to some other friends around. And I just didn't know how to do anything except for tell his story of what Eric told me about who Victor was. That's how I just started. I was just reaching out to get the story to keep going, to make a squeaky wheel It's like watching someone running into a brick wall over and over again and tell them, you need help. Let's find some help. Let me, let me help shield you from that wall just a little bit and let's direct into moving forward and getting, you know, more people involved because it doesn't seem like his story is out there in the world. I didn't realize getting in more information and, and trying to help out made me get closer to being part of his family and getting to know everybody of his family and saying, look, I might be nobody to you guys, but let me just reach out and see what I can do to make more noise to find out what we can do to keep telling Victor's story. Maybe we can find some answers in telling Victor's story. I hope that, you know, it helps others from small towns saying, hey, I can do more. And I can help out my town, or I can help out with others, just reaching out. Nicole never knew Victor, but she doesn't have to. She knows Eric. And since 2002, Victor's disappearance has been part of who Eric is. Not only because having a missing brother changes you, but because so many people say that Eric reminds them of Victor. I was telling my friend Nicole a while back, I was walking one day. One of my brother's friends that he went to school with stopped me. I was just walking. And uh, he was like, hey, Victor. And I, I, I turned around and I was like, no, I'm his little brother. And he was like, man, you, y'all look just alike and y'all walk just alike. So like a lot of people always say we walk alike and act alike. It was the life of a party. You know, he put smiles on people's faces. Like, most of the classmates that I met, they was always saying, like, oh, he was so kind. He always, you know, he was super smart. 
you know, always would help go out his way to help someone and would never hurt a fly. Like he was always in a happy mood, you know, like he was, he lived life to the fullest. That's how, he, that's how I am. That's how he was. He loved being around anyone. Like if, if somebody was to have, somebody was having a problem or if somebody was arguing about something, he was like the peacemaker. And that's how I am. A lot of people say that I was like him because I was always, you know, making peace with people. Like I was always good like that. And that's how he was. Eric says that it feels good to be told he's like Victor, but it's painful too. Because the family has been looking for Victor for the past 20 years. And over the past four months, as we've been working on this story, Eric has remembered more, talked to more people, caught up with more friends, and all of it has widened the possibilities, but also brought up more memories. The paths that might lead to where Victor could have gone, or what might have happened. The Greenwoods have lived in Atoka for a long time. Generations. They're connected to many families. Willie May, Victor's mother, her maiden name is Yarborough. Victor's biological father, Buford Greenwood, is a cousin to the stepfather who raised Victor, Joe Bill Greenwood. Joe Bill married Willie May in 1966, when Victor was a year and a half old. Though technically Victor's stepfather, he treated him as his own son. Victor did maintain some ties with his family in Texas, with his biological father Buford, and the family Buford started there. But Victor's home was in Atoka, with Joe Bill and Willie May. They went on to have four more children, Joe Bill Jr., Patricia, Chris, and Eric, the baby of the family. He separated from his oldest sibling, Victor, by nearly two decades. Joe Bill Greenwood worked for the city of Atoka for 45 years. He knew most everyone. His office was in the city's complex where the police station and other municipal offices were housed. Willie Mae was a housewife with children born across several decades, and she had her hands full. Chris and Eric, whom we interviewed for this series, are the second youngest and youngest in the family. But even they are separated by more than a decade. Still, that didn't stop all the Greenwood siblings from being close. Together is how they spent most of their time. When I was little, we always, always hung out together. So, like, our family was real big with hanging out with each other. So, yeah, I remember all that. Hanging out, wrestling, playing around, being goofy. It was always like that. Just brothers and sisters always hanging around together. We usually played, like, horseshoes. Usually, like, did the little running track thing because we was, like, big on running track. My brothers and sisters, like, we all, you know, ran track and basketball, baseball, all that type. So we was, like, very athletic. We was an athletic family. Running races, uh, pretty much any anything that we can, like, make a game out of or whatever we can do. We were always outside, had family outings. My mom... She, I remember she used to have like uh, pet rabbits, ducks. We had all kind of dogs and stuff like that. So we pretty much just, you know, take care of that. And, you know, had the little farm life right there. So 
yeah, we pretty much had it all right there doing it whenever I was little. Was Victor an animal lover? Yes, we all was big animal lovers. If we ever, you know, talk about trying to go hunting or something, my mom didn't like that. She, <laughs> she was, she would like literally get on to us or try to give us whoopings for that because she didn't like when people go hunting for animals. That was like one thing we couldn't do, but we could have them. That's the only closest thing we could do with animals and play with them and stuff. We couldn't go hunting. So that's one thing with my mom that we couldn't do. Do you feel like that developed your sense of compassion? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Would you say that that was a big part of Victor's personality? Yeah, that and being around his family. He loved being around his family. In young adulthood, Victor developed a genetic condition called Libra Hereditary Optic Neuropathy. All of Willie Mae's male children would eventually be diagnosed with eye conditions, but Victor and Eric's would be the most severe. Eric and Victor also have the same diagnosis. Like Victor, Eric is legally blind and unable to drive. Libra's tends to come on suddenly, without any warning. According to the National Organization for Rare Disorders, a person at the onset of the disorder, usually biologically male and in young adulthood, will wake up and suddenly experience blurred vision in one eye. In the next weeks or months, they will experience the same blurred vision in the other eye. Glasses and other treatments generally cannot correct the blurred vision caused by Libras, and many with the condition receive disability benefits from the federal government. Victor's onset was typical in early adulthood, and Eric's has followed a similar path. By the time Victor disappeared, he'd been traveling exclusively on foot for at least a decade. Eric described his experience with Libra hereditary optic neuropathy. It's like whenever you look at something, it's just like a glare. Every piece is like broken apart, like bits of pieces. When you get closer, you can see things, but from a distance, you can't. But side visions are clear. It's just a peripheral vision is what they call it. Um, it's just a real bad glare, and the sunlight hurts. But after a while, you just get used to it. It's very hard to have to deal with. But yeah, like he dealt with it good, I could say. And that's kind of like how I learned to deal with it, to try to be strong like him and not let it, you know, slow us down. So a lot of people didn't even know that we were like legally blind until somebody else said something about it. But it's just something that we just really not talk about. We just keeps it like that. So we don't have people to really um, worry about like that, to feel sorry. So, but that's pretty much how it is. Victor continued living at home with his parents and younger siblings. His days followed a predictable path. He knew every corner of his little town, and he took the same walks each day, with his father to work, a visit to a relative, a visit to another, a stop at the store. But in 1999, there was a major disruption not just for Victor, but for the entire Greenwood family. 
In January of 1999, Willie Mae Greenwood, their mother, was busy. Her daughter, Patricia, had a baby the year before, and Willie Mae was helping with the babysitting. She often helped with the early morning care and would take the baby back to her and her husband, Joe Bill's room, so Patricia could get a little extra sleep. Eric, a decade or more younger than his siblings, was a sophomore in high school at the time. He remembers the day that it happened very clearly. He'd gone to a school basketball game after getting permission from his mom, came home, and chatted with her at the kitchen table. He remembers she had curlers in her hair. They'd all gone to bed. And then, suddenly, the house was full of activity, shouting. Something was wrong. So this was 99. So my oldest nephew, he was a year old. So he used to sleep in the bed with my mom and dad. So my dad woke up and she wasn't there because she was supposed to go fix the bottle. But she was laying on the ground. And that's when I went in there and saw her. And then my sister was so hysterical. Like she didn't know what to do. So I had to call. And then at first they tried to come to the wrong house. And I told them their address. And then... I went in there, and I remember Mark Raines was there. And Mark Raines grabbed me because he didn't want me to go in there to see her like that. So they went and took her to the hospital. And I remember waiting outside the door. And I remember them taking her in, closing the door. And it seemed like it was like probably five, ten seconds the door came open said that, that she passed and it hit me hard and I slammed the table and I just left. Like I'm 15. I didn't have no driver license. I jumped in the van and drove away and I sat at the red light and I seen these two diesels coming and like the, the thought crossed my mind, but something in the back was like, Hey, don't do that. And I already know that was mom. So I turned around and went back, but it was just like, I was, I was heartbroken, but I couldn't cry, you know, and I couldn't eat for like two days, two to three days. I couldn't eat anything. So whenever it got to our funeral, that's when all the tears finally came out. But yeah, it was, it was, that was a shock to me. Her death was sudden and completely shattering for Victor and all her other children. Victor was 34, and her youngest, Eric, was barely a teenager. He wasn't fully cognizant of his brother's life outside the home. But even Chris, who was closer in age to Victor, can't answer everything. They can both say, though, that in March of 1999, roughly a month after Willie Mae's funeral, Victor experienced a mental health crisis. My brother, Victor, took it a little hard. That's when something happened one day where I guess they said that he had, oh, what was it? What's that called? Not bipolar. What's the other? Schizophrenia. Yeah. What had happened was a place that we used to hang out at, you know, everybody would drink down there and all that. I guess somebody put, I don't know nothing about drug stuff, so... I just heard it was like like angel dust or something. Because I heard it was in a drink, and then I heard that it was in some weed or something. And it kind of like 
got to them because when you smoke angel dust or, or PCP or whatever, it really messes you up a lot. So when that happened, I remember they took him to Carl Albert. As we've said, Eric was a minor at the time, and his understanding of the situation was filtered mostly through what he heard, not what he directly experienced. Eric's friend Nicole was able to visit the local county clerk and look up any details pertaining to this incident. Victor did have one arrest on file, March 10, 1999. His mother had died less than two months before. Based on the public records Nicole retrieved, on March 10th, Joe Bill Greenwood called to alert emergency services that Victor was standing out on Highway 69, and Joe Bill feared for his safety. Victor was taken to the Carl Albert Mental Health Facility in McAllister, Oklahoma. The clerk had no record of how long Victor was there, and when Eric recently attempted to gain access to Victor's records, he was told they were no longer on file. Eric and their brother Chris, though, they think they remember he was there for about a month. There's no official record stating that Victor received a dose of something like PCP or a similar drug, but Eric and Chris strongly believe this occurred, particularly because Victor's experience that March in 1999 came on so rapidly and right after he'd been at their usual hangout. Our understanding is that Victor was diagnosed with schizophrenia or a related mental illness, as the former is noted in his missing persons file but there's no official medical documentation included. He was also classified as, quote, endangered missing due to his mental state. We asked Eric about Victor's time at Carl Albert. In addition to an outpatient program, it has a small inpatient center. Today, there are about 15 beds. I mean, he wasn't like all the way normal, but he knew who we were, you know? When we first began speaking, Eric and Chris felt that after the initial effects of the medication he was given at Carl Albert wore off, Victor was largely back to normal. But as Eric spent more time thinking about the last few years, before his brother disappeared, he remembered more events. We aren't here to diagnose Victor with anything, but we can share that some researchers have noted that a number of people who experience schizophrenia or similar symptoms may have their first onset of symptoms after a mind-altering drug experience. It's not that a drug caused them to develop schizophrenia or a related mental illness. It's that some studies have noted a correlation between first-time hospitalizations for psychosis resulting from drug use and then eventual schizophrenia diagnoses. The most thorough research we could find put that number at about 25%. You can find a link in our sources if you'd like to read more. Whatever the hospital said, Eric told us that, at first, he felt Victor mostly seemed like his old self. Victor was given medication, but Eric doesn't think he took it regularly. That was also noted on Victor's missing persons report, though we aren't sure who gave that particular piece of information to police. When Victor came home, his brothers initially felt that any behavior that seemed different was likely a lingering effect of the PCP. I heard that whenever you get off of it completely, even if you take it one time, you'll still kind of have that effect for a little while till it goes away. And I remember this one day, 
it's not funny, but in a way it was funny because me and him laughed about it. I, I, I came home. I was like, hey, bro, what you doing? I was like, why are you getting all dressed up? And he was like, oh, I'm going on a date. So I was like, on a date? I said, who are you going on a date with? And I kid you not, he said, Marilyn Monroe. I, I, I just busted out laughing. I was like, brother, Marilyn Monroe is dead. He was like, he, he laughed. He's like, no, no, I'm seriously going on a date with Marilyn Monroe. I was like, okay, well, tell her I said hi. <laughs> like, so that was like one of the moments that me and him had that good laugh. But from there, I could tell that stuff was, you know, still around. You know, it was, it, he was still trying to come off of that, you know, even though they said, that it would take a while, but it was so funny that we both laughed. Like it wasn't to the point that I thought I would laugh, but he even laughed about it. Did y'all talk about that later? I really didn't, to be honest, because, you know, I was, I was young. I didn't know nothing about that stuff. You know, I was still in school, playing sports, all uh, that. Only thing I could do was just be there for him, you know. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know what to ask him. I didn't know nothing about what it was. Me thinking about it now, I wish I, I did know something about it that I could have just asked him about it. When we first began work on this case, Eric remembered his brother as mostly stable within a few months of his return from Carl Albert. He said Victor returned to his old routines and was spending most of his time hanging out with their family, both at home and around town, and visiting friends, following his usual walking paths and routines. He stopped at the same stores, saw the same folks, and seemed to settle back in. Eric's older brother, Chris, remembered Victor's usual pattern. We always hung with our family. And there wasn't no strangers or nothing. It was always family places we went. I would go to work, take a lunch break. I would meet up with my brother. He was always at one of our family's houses. He wasn't dating anybody. Then he'd come back to my dad's house and same routine over and over each day. So for the most part, things seemed better in late 1999 and in 2000. But Eric also says Victor was picked up by patrol cars once or twice, perhaps for public disturbance, though it's not clear. As far as we're aware, there were no charges filed. He just got a ride home. Eric noticed something else in those years. He found Victor sometimes argued with people or things others couldn't see. In the mental health field, this is called responding to internal stimuli and can be associated with a psychotic episode. Eric remembers these behaviors continuing into the following year as well. Periods where he seemed stable and periods where he seemed to be responding to internal stimuli or was more often absent from home. This brings us back to the uncertainty over years that we mentioned at the top of the episode, January 2001 versus January 2002. Although internal police documents and local newspapers plus the NCIC records verify that Victor disappeared in 2002, NamUs and some online sources list Victor as having gone missing in 2001. But that confusion is not limited to the internet. When we first met Eric, 
He was sure Victor had disappeared in 2001, not 2002. This was compounded by the fact that someone, not Victor's family in Atoka, had, for reasons that are unclear to us even now, arranged for a tombstone to be placed in Victor's honor in a local cemetery. It was placed sometime in the early 2000s, probably 2005 or 2006, and not in their family plot. Rather, it sits near the entry gate to the cemetery, next to a tree. This stone bears a picture of Victor, his birthday, and the date of January 14, 2001, not January 9, 2002. If you'll recall, the missing persons report was filed on January 14, but there's still the matter of the date being off by an entire year. There's another error on that stone, too. Rather than reading Victor R. Greenwood, it says Victory R. Greenwood on the stone. We haven't found any official paperwork bearing that variation of Victor's name. And Eric and Chris also confirmed that his legal name is Victor, not Victory. And there's no death certificate on file for Victor or any listing in his name in the Social Security Death Index. This tombstone seems to be a memorial of some kind, but it completely mystified Eric, who was a young adult living in Tulsa when it was placed. When he moved back to Atoka, he started to visit the cemetery to visit his mother's grave, and it was shocking to see that stone. The tombstone, combined with a few other factors, created some of the online confusion concerning Victor's case. Give his name a search, and it will pop right up on Find a Grave, unfortunately, incorrectly. We now know who placed the tombstone. We've agreed not to mention that information here, but we can say that although it is undeniably confusing for Eric and his siblings, it was not done maliciously. And both the police and Victor's siblings agree it is not cause for suspicion in the case. But it is another strange piece in the puzzle of Victor's disappearance. And when Eric would walk through the cemetery and see that date, his mind would stretch back to 2001. Eventually, he began to think that was when Victor disappeared. But it wasn't. It's just when Victor became more absent from his life. Victor had missed Eric's high school graduation in 2001, something that Eric had trouble believing his big brother would ever do. Eric now believes that's why his brain transposed the years. The Victor that he knew wouldn't have missed that moment. So, Victor wasn't there. And when Eric talked about the case, he began to think of it as having happened in 2001, only after beginning work on the podcast discussing stories with old friends and family, and reviewing the case file, have his memories begun to resurface. According to Eric, the impact of their mother's death and Victor's frightening experience and subsequent time at Carl Albert may have had further reaching effects. Recently, an old friend reminded him that Victor had moved out for a few months and lived with a relative, and had disappeared for a few days at a time, visiting people not gone missing, but not in consistent contact. So we spoke again with Eric after several months of work, 
to discuss some of his more current thoughts. He reflected both on Victor's time at Carl Albert and after his release. I know you thought a little bit more about your brother's mental health and whether he could have been experiencing an altered sense of reality that might have started with his experience with laced marijuana, but also could have perhaps related to his diagnosis at the hospital and any medication he might have been given. Can you talk a little bit more about that? With his uh, mental stage, yeah, it was just kind of to the point to where we went and visited him at Carl Albert. You could tell that he was kind of shaken up and everything. Like, he really didn't know too much of what's going on. And I think the way that I remember seeing him, like, a part of him was fighting it. But you can tell that it was hard for him. But once we left, and then I believe it might have been two, three weeks later, whenever he came back home, he seemed pretty fine. And then he had these little moments where he would fall off again and get to like talking to himself and talking to other things and stuff like that. Just small little bitty things like that. And then it got bigger and bigger from there. Do you feel that he was in some ways vulnerable at the time that he went missing? Yes, I do. I believe that, yes, because he was the type of person who would trust people, you know. He put his trust in people. That's how he, he looked at people being good. And I think some people took advantage of him because of that. They really did. And what does that mean exactly? In Victor's case, it might have nothing to do with his disappearance. But it might have everything to do with it. Because since January 9th, 2002, rumors have run through Atoka, blaming one person or another, hinting that Victor was at the bottom of a body of water, killed at a bridge, robbed, even headed to Tulsa. So many stories told over and over, details changing a little each time. His brothers, Eric and Chris, have heard them all. So has the assistant chief, Mark Rains. They've checked them out. One lake has been dragged. A pond has been searched. A man bragged about killing Victor, but that turned out to be some kind of gross display. He'd seen Victor's missing persons poster and made up the rest. Some say that Victor could have been jumped. Victor could fight and had a missing upper right central incisor and a broken right index finger, permanently bent at the tip to prove it. But that fighting had been in his teens and early 20s. Victor was in his 30s when he disappeared. By then, he was traveling carefully due to his eyes and spending time with friends and family who'd known him for years. If he'd been attacked, he had likely been taken unaware. Robbery's a possibility. Victor did carry some money. Not a lot, as his father tended to hold his disability checks, so it wouldn't be a big haul. And what are the other options? Could Victor have had an accident while walking? Could he have died some other way? Could he have left Atoka? If so, might he have had mental health issues that affected his ability to return? Victor Ray Greenwood stands at those crossroads in 2002, the possibilities of his case twisting out. Cold, but not impossible to track. Not if people work together to follow them. Next time on The Fall Line, 
we'll start at the most important point, the day of Victor's disappearance. We've unwound the tangle of the timeline. Now we examine the trails. What happened to Victor Greenwood? Can someone in Atoka, Oklahoma, provide the answers his family needs? Victor Ray Greenwood was 36 years old when he disappeared. He's described as a black male between 6 feet and 6 feet 2 inches tall and about 150 pounds with brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was most likely clean-shaven, although he sometimes had a light mustache. Victor had a scar, which Crime Stoppers describes as between his eyebrows. His brother Eric remembers it as being closer to the right side of his face, the result of an accidental burn. Eric remembers that, that January, Victor's hair was cut into a fade, but that it had begun to grow out. Victor was likely wearing a white t-shirt or a green and white rugby shirt, blue jeans, and tennis shoes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Victor Ray Greenwood, please call the Atoka Police Department at 580-889-3250. There is a $1,000 reward offered in his case. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIAs, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins billboard, begin a therapy fund for families who've been on the show, and many other projects. You can read a public post about those goals on our Patreon page. Each and every one of our patrons helps continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos for only five bucks a month. We've also added live streams, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters and Kim Fritz. Family interviews by Brooke Hargrove, produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the service of PIs.